Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect Radio Show and Podcast. Features one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, the influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings for cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome Morton Jensen, architect and president of JRDV Urban International. JRDV is an integrated practice that combines architectural design, urban planning, and development strategy. For more information, feel free to visit jrdv.com. Again, jrdv.com. Hello, Morton. We're honored and excited to have you on uh, the Modern Architect Show today. Thank you, Tom. Morton, we like to start with early inspirations. And what we mean by that is, if you can recall, as far back as you can recall, when you were inspired to be an architect and how, if there was a galvanizing moment or moments that you can recall that are you know, relevant to now and what you do? Well, there are many such moments. I, as a small child, I was always building things. I was drawing things, building things. My mom couldn't actually keep me in the house. I kept even in the rain going outside, <laughs> building castles in the sand, building furniture, things of that nature. When I went to visit different people's houses, my parents thought we were, it was kind of strange. I came home, I would draw their floor plan. So it was kind of always <laughs> clear that I was going to become an architect. How that's relevant to now, I guess it's just the fact that, you know, that's where the the bowling ball went. Hopefully it wasn't the gutter, but it just kept going in that direction. And that's relevant to me personally. And yeah. I'm sure that there's some other relevance that you're looking for that's no, more significant. That's but for me, that's where my bowling ball went. Okay. Oh, wow. And you really hurled that thing. Well, sort of. Internationally, in fact. Yeah. Well, you know, these days, if you're not doing international work in many ways, I think you're not participating in the world economy, whether you're making something in China or it seems that the global economy has really taken over such a huge amount of the overall economy. And I'm glad, and maybe architecture is because it's place oriented is more local. But if you went to San Francisco, looked at the large architecture offices, they're doing a lot of international work and they travel a lot. So it's actually not that unusual. Yeah. What's your thought on architects that come from other parts of the world to work in your area, San Francisco Bay Area? Well, you, in my opinion, I think there's plenty of 
talented architects locally that can do fantastic work. But what's your thought? Yeah, well, I think we have two things. At first, I thought you were asking really about our staff, which is mostly international. And since our work is international, but I think you're also asking about what do we think about if, you know, a famous architect came in from a different country, say Mario Bodo, the Boda designing the original Museum of Modern Art, that sort of thing. And that does, you know, foster with the Apple headquarters. I think it's fine. I think actually the more connections we have to different places in the world, the safer the world's going to be, the more prosperous the world's going to be. I think that's only a good thing. I suppose someone locally could say, well, gee, why didn't I get the Apple headquarters? <laughs> well, no one called us, I can tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, speaking of that, when you said you said something interesting, that no one called us, how else do you discover, find, and bring new clients? If you Are you depending on them to reach you? You have to reach out to them? In general, people come to us. We, our office doesn't really focus too hugely on marketing. We don't have a marketing person. Our office is really, we're kind of like architects, architects. We're kind of heads down people that do the work. And we think a form of marketing is just doing a really good job and having repeat clients and being recommended by word of mouth. And that's actually very powerful. Even an office that's not too huge like our office, you don't need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers. You know, this is not Safeway. (laughs) You really don't need that many. And it's really a matter more of having good ones that are loyal to you that actually it takes both a very good client that really works really tightly and well with the architect and finding those exact relationships. Okay. Um, How about your culture since you touched on it? What is the culture... If you can explain a bit more about the culture in your firm. So our office, you know, it's almost like being like craftspeople, I think, okay. you know, within the office in particular. And I think we do see architecture as a craft and it's got, there's a lot of methods. There's actually a lot to learn. It's very, very collaborative. I think we have a very flat organization. We have, we really enjoy having young new people that are right out of school. Actually, that's where just about everyone who comes to our office, most people come immediately out of school. So that's kind of our inside culture. I think we also have an outside culture as we interact with our clients, which is probably a little bit different. Yeah. How's that experience if you... Uh, well, so... Be, as our, from your end. Yeah, well, so as our work is is very international, actually, so, you know, we see our clients every few months face-to-face, but a lot of it is go-to meeting, phone calls, but it's a close personal relationship that we tend to have, and I think our office tends to not put so many barriers around what we call the architectural practice. We're very involved in the overall conceptualization, the entitlement, the politics, the economics, the user experience of our projects. So we're all over the map exploring all those kind of topics with our client. And I think the clients that we work the best with are ones that really integrate them us completely into their business plan and what they're trying to do. And, you know, we're just one component as the architects, but that's a big part of it, of their business is, you know, the physical facilities or buildings that they have that are part of their business. And so we really feel that it really is very beneficial for us to be deeply involved. Yeah. When you say deeply involved, like even personal, like knowing their birthdays. Does it well, we know. Yeah. Well, we've worked with people so long that we do have, we do know their birthdays, but also knowing <laughs> okay. their, their business and really knowing their customers and their competitors, that sort of thing. And the economics that they're facing, the political risks that they're taking. It's a lot of bigger projects. You know, they're, they're risky endeavors. It's not easy. And oftentimes we're in different countries with 
different systems and you have to learn different construction systems. You have to learn different politics, different approval processes and so forth. And, you know, we're kind of on a path together learning oftentimes. And that's another part of our culture, I think. And and that permeates into our office. We really want all of our staff to be as exposed as possible to every aspect of what we do. When I began as an architect in San Francisco in 1981, this is well before the computer was in the office, you know, there it was more segregated with the designers sat here, the production people were here, there was kind of a management department, and people were more isolated from what was actually going on where, you know, the rubber hits the road, you know, for the buildings that are being built. But our office tries to really integrate everyone into every aspect um, of the business. And that's a form of mentoring because, you know, I'm going to get old and maybe even getting there that uh, maybe I'm already there. (laughs) And they're going to need to be mentored. That's just life. That's just how how it goes. And so we have to train the next generation and they need to have a full range of understanding of of what it takes to be in this business, which isn't an easy business. Yeah. How has it changed in your experiences over the last, say, three or five years? That's a general question, or at least let's say, how has it evolved? Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say three or five years is that long. Many of the projects we're working on in our office, we've actually been working on as a hotel in downtown Berkeley. It's now under construction. We began that 10 years ago. We've got a market hall in Culver City, California. I think we started that in 2006, and it's now just breaking ground. Working on a project in Barcelona, we've been working on it since the 1990s, and it looks like it's finally going to to happen. So three to five years doesn't seem particularly long to me. And I would say, and this is probably very different for your other guests, but the kind of work that, that I've been involved with has actually been remarkably similar for not just years, but for decades, the way of interacting with clients, the type of projects. I think that's very, very, for me, it's been very evolutionary. It's not been something with dramatic shifts. And that's probably not true of, of everyone. You know what I like about that is there must be a common thread or is there a process, at least mentally, maybe emotionally, that you go through when you onboard a new client? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good question. So I think, you know, we want to as quickly as possible really understand where they are, what they're trying to do in its totality. And we generally, and what we do is never easy. No one ever hires us to repeat something. It's always, it's usually most of our, the clients that work well with us are actually, sometimes they actually are trained as architects and, um, and actually are architects. Other times they went into a different type of business and became a developer or worked for a public agency, but really wanted to be an architect and they've got ideas. And so I think our job many ways is to kind of be, you know, be their paintbrushes and be their pens and pen and, <laughs> and actually try to realize their dreams, even though they have not, you know, Articulated. at least practiced, yeah. you know, officially in an architectural office. And so I think, you know, maybe the answer to your question is really kind of really understanding very deeply what they're, and usually they're coming to us because they've got to try and do something that hasn't actually been done before. And they're experimenting. They're taking massive risks, personal risks and business risks to do something that hasn't been done before. And they want someone to collaborate with that can help them realize it. And that's the kind of client that we tend to work with on multiple projects over many years. How do even your existing clients... Are they, before they uh, become their, your existing clients or at, during the process, do they see 
and understand the value that you bring uh, uh, actually exceeded even their understanding of what an architect does or yeah. doesn't do? I mean, I, I actually don't know. You'd have to ask, ask them. I, I think, you know, as any good business person does, it doesn't matter if we have a donut shop or something, you always want to <laughs> exceed the, and nothing wrong with donut shops, um, <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> for, for the donut audience, but there's, you always, if you want to be in business for a long time and have a sustainable business, both internally and externally, you always need to do better than the expectations. You need to exceed them on a constant basis, and you constantly need to reinvent and think of new things to do. Otherwise, it's not going to be a long-term proposition, I don't think. Unless you have, like, a monopoly on something, then you're kind of stuck. <laughs> Everyone's stuck with you. <laughs> Segway to this. I would imagine that there's a number of clients that you've worked with, especially international, that really see you know the value of what you bring to them again exceeds even their idea of just design i hope so and i think yeah. our office are you being kind or I'm, no? well you know being humble and okay. and a trying to be, trying and to be. hopefully not falsely no you really don't know what other people think of you and so forth but i think you know the fact that we do have a lot of repeat clients is kind of a good indication mm-hmm. and that saves us all the trouble a lot of architecture offices a huge percentage of the revenue goes into finding new clients and I think that's somewhat self-fulfilling. If you put too much effort into that and all the brain goes into that, into the new projects, there's no one really focusing on the old projects. And so I think you can get into different sort of of cycles. What was your question again? Sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, you, you, yeah, you're no, on it. Yeah. Yeah, just about how the value of, of uh, you and your firm to the clients exceeds just their perceptive uh, perceptions of yeah. just you're doing only design. Well, what I was, yeah, that was what I was going to answer was I think we d- do take the totality of what they're trying to produce. We don't, we're not just going to, you know, try with blinders, okay, you know, we're just going to do exactly this and um, you're going to pay us for this. No, we're trying to look at what their goals are. We want them to be successful. So we do need to understand about what is their marketplace, where they're in the marketplace, what are the politics, what are the different trends that are beginning to affect it, whether, you know, the, the overall social impressions. So we take this in a much larger level because also the kind of work that we do, we do a large range of work, but a lot of our work is trying to really emotionally connect to the end user, to the actual pedestrians that are within our building or traveling to see them. We really try to create that connection. And that takes a lot of you know, a lot of exploration that we do with our clients about exactly what is that interface going to be like. Excellent. We'll uh, return in just a moment. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. We want to tell you about KidMob, K-I-D-M-O-B, is a nonprofit mobile kid-integrated design firm Guided by a diverse and talented team of designers, architects, contractors, and engineers, KidMob works with young people using project-based learning to address school and community needs. This is done through a variety of workshops, consulting, co-creation of curriculum, and much more. For additional information or to donate, visit KidMob.org. That's KidMob.org. We're talking today with Morton Jensen, architect and president of of JRDV Urban International. For more information, feel free to visit jrdv.com. Again, jrdv.com. 
www.liberty-to-share.com. Morton, and what recent projects are you working on if you're at liberty to share with the audience? Yeah. You don't have to say company names if you don't. Yeah. So there's some projects, probably our, our largest project we're working on now. We're on a non-disclosure. It's a very big project in the New York City area. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk more about that on another, yeah, at another time. But so that's where I'm putting a lot of my effort right now. It's a very complex project in New York, and it's actually wonderful to go to New York and begin to learn more about that city yes. and its and its history and the unusual characteristics of the site. More recently, I could speak more about what we are working on in China. We have a project yeah. that's now under construction in the city of Suzhou. The project is called City Green. And it's also the commercial part that's kind of open to the public is called the ID Park. And it's a unusual development for a variety of reasons. What our client attempted to do is working with us very closely to do was he really wanted in China and particularly in this area, the climate is often very challenging. It's cold in the winter and really hot in the summer in Suzhou. Whereas indoor malls are not really the thing that's happening in the United States and in much of the world. In that location, there's a huge demand for an indoor mall that would actually link four high-rise buildings. But what our client really wanted to do was he didn't want something to feel like a typical mall. You know, if you, I don't want to name names on the air, okay. but, but there are, if we just, everyone can imagine what a typical yeah. mall looks like. It doesn't have the intimacy, the intricacy, doesn't have the connection to history, the vitality, particularly of older cities. And Suzhou and China, it's a city, I think it's around 8 million. It's a big city. be as big as Chicago, maybe bigger. It's actually surrounded by many old water towns. And when you go to the old Chinese water towns, you see that kind of intricacy, intimacy, vitality. And that is very emotionally connected. Every step you take, every breath you take is something you remember. and You really feel grounded. You feel enclosed. You love humanity. But a lot of malls really don't have that. And so he wanted to try to do this and to, first of all, create that type of an environment, a timeless type of human experience. And But plus, also, he wanted it to be connected to the outdoors, even though it had to be indoors. And it's a beautiful site over a lake. And it's been a pleasure and a, and a yeah. challenge of, and very complicated site to work on that. And that's a perfect example of what I was talking about before. He really needed to work with an architectural firm that could totally get into his brain. And he sends us all hours of the day, he might even be listening he's in <laughs> Hong Kong, that, you know, pictures, he'll see a picture of a building or something or an activity or something on WeChat. He'll send that. And then that's an, a hint to, it doesn't have to say anything. A hint. I, it's a hint. Okay. okay. This is what, I, this is what he means. And, and you got to take several of the hints and kind of triangulate, oh, maybe that's what he means. And that's kind of how we work on a project like that. But that's an interesting project. It's under construction at the moment. Yeah. Is there a square footage or? A... It's big. I think, <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's big. I think the, just the retail part of it is probably like half a million square feet. And there's four towers. Everything in China is much bigger than it is here. So the whole thing is several million square feet. I, I couldn't say offhand, but it's it's fairly large. And that's even sort of a medium. It's not a little project in China, but it's not a gargantuan project in China. Yeah, and you've done gargantuan projects. We have done yeah, pretty big them. projects, yeah. And what's your experience from a gargantuan to a medium? The challenges, are they different, the same? Uh, it's kind of a general well, question. I, I think but... they're, they're both. I mean, I like gargantuan because 
you know, just like like when I was a little boy in the sandbox, I want to change the world. I, I want to be significant. I want to interact and participate. So the bigger the project, it, yeah, it's, it's like more exciting. So you know, so it, so I, I think you know, as long as the, as it's a good project. But so in, in that sense, bigger is I'd like it if they have more levels of complexity. However, the smaller projects really still have an intimacy and a, a level of connection. Think of doing a restaurant or a, we do some public markets in our office. We don't do too many interiors, but we also really try to be involved on that emotional pedestrian level. And actually, I think the sweet spot in our office is trying to connect that intimacy and then kind of connect, make that kind of the, the heart of a larger development, that you have a real urban focus that does connect a lot of different building types. And so I think, you know, in some ways, it's similar in the sense that if you just work on a big project and you only think of it as a big project, you're going to be working at the wrong scale and not connecting with the intimacy of the pedestrian. And for a big project, it's going to be those intimate moments that are the most significant. Excellent. Charlotte, our engineer, oh, you have a I question. Have a I question I'm just dying to ask you. So I'm sitting here staring at on the internet of what you're speaking of, and it looks like a fabulous project. So I have two quick questions. One of them is, tell us what a Chinese water city is. Oh, Watertown. So that's a long topic. But well, so I've spent a lot of time reading about trying to understand as much as I can. We, It's just, you know, maybe I'm just too insecure, but I cannot design a building where I don't really understand pretty deeply the history of a place. Well, the whole Yangtze River Delta was an amazing place and still is an amazing it is of course it's a um, place that had a very different form of urbanism than what you found in in Europe and other parts of the world the United States because people really lived along the Yangtze uh, River Delta and which had many side tributaries and there are these beautiful water towns they're all over that area and I suppose they are the equivalent to if you go to the you know Italian hill town that everyone all architects talk about. It's kind of the same thing, except you have a hill. You normally have a canal or a series of canals, and they're all over there. It's really, really interesting the history of the Yangtze River Delta. So is it like a Venice or not necessarily? Well, so not quite. So a Venice would typically they're far smaller than that. The bigger cities like Shanghai was actually a colonial city and it has more of the scale of Venice, but it doesn't, it did originally have more canals in it. The old Chinese section that actually really was a water town. So I wouldn't say it's exactly like Venice. But it does have this characteristics of where you have, you know, there's a building, there's a sidewalk, then there's a canal in the middle, and you have the same kind of hump bridges that connect different sections. And it's a wonderful pedestrianized type of a world. Yeah, Um, so it's fantastic. So my other question is, when you go to take on this as an architect, do you design and build for, do you expect this to be equivalent to something that's going to last for 50 years, 500 years, 100 years? Well, I mean, why not 5,000 years? Exactly. Well, well, no, but in general, do, and of course, we're all only on this planet for a limited time, but but I I actually do believe in designing for eternity. It sounds crazy, but but the best cities in the world, I mean, if I go to a new city, I want to go to the old historic center. And I don't know that, you know, I wouldn't expect my projects humbly would be necessarily worthy (laughs) of considering that, but I think you've got to give it a shot. I think, and... Every building should evolve, be remodeled, partially demolished and replaced and updated. I think cities are should evolve. I mean, if, if they're stuck, then there's something wrong. But I think there still, should still be a thread of 
of what had happened before. And I think it's really our past generation speaking through the buildings, you know, just through the directions of the streets. I and mean, I always find it interesting with street grids. Why is this at an angle to this and that? There's a story behind that. That person don't, no longer lives. And there's a story yeah. behind the story behind the story. I think having those kinds of layers of history and the tapestry of it is important. And I hope that everything we build, some grain of it, some, and there were some beautiful sparks, I think, of love and interactions that that we went through working with our client and the city where we were and the people who were going to go there. And we, I think, want to have those good moments and our best intentions remembered in some way. And actually, the whole physicality of a city is kind of a fossilization of the process that created it and how it added on to the process that preceded it. So I, I do hope. So I'm going to go with 5,000 years. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, so all that said. Okay. Well, I mean, that speaks well of you because, you know, the most sustainable building is the one that is built to last for the longest. Exactly. With so the smallest not, footprint. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Bravo. And working with a project that uh, Charlotte brought up there, is that something you sought out or when you were introduced to it, you went, oh, this would be great. Yes. I mean, are you that, I guess, turned on by projects, you know, initially? So when you say, which part you're talking about, the project we designed? or The, the one you designed, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that, yeah, so we're, we're turned on. Honestly, we get interested in anything. If the <laughs> client has an interesting enough proposition, if it's interesting, it's something someone hasn't done, it's well-intentioned, we're going to give it. We're not going to be biased and said because it's in this city or it's on that site. If it's in a tough, challenging site, actually, I think that's a bigger challenge to us. If there's people that are not happy there, they don't feel comforted by their physical environment and don't have the things that architecture can provide in people's lives, that's even a bigger call. This was a beautiful site. It happened to be on a, on a big lake and a very prominent government site. But Frankly, you know, and I guess that is a call to arms that we really, really have to do a good job on this one. But I think we tried to do a good job on, on all of our projects and we're not biased. Yeah. I like you used the word several times here, vitality. Yeah. Uh, what, what's that mean for you? Yeah. To you? Yeah. Well, I, I think so. I think that's huge. I actually think the architectural world is, you know, how are we really doing if you're like compare us to different centuries and different times? I don't know that we're doing so well. What I mean vitality is what I think of what human beings, when we stopped just being kind of random animals and plants and, and stuff, and really started to congregate in the very first civilizations, that it is pedestrians. They're not, they're not in cars. They're not on big, wide roads. They're not traveling 60 miles per hour. They're not parking in giant parking lots. They're real pedestrians, and there's a variety of different people that come together in a relatively small place. That, and there's a real diversity of what people do, what their backgrounds are, what they're building. That is a vital place. And you go to ancient cities, even third world cities, you go to a lot, you go back in history, cities were far more vital than they are today. And they are. Wow. Uh, my mouth just dropped in the yeah. ground. Share, share how? Well, so I think part of it is technology. I think we have to, and I, and I think there are some encouraging signs of what's possibly becoming a trend. Maybe it's a little too early to tell that it's a trend. But, you know, so when people were just by foot, you had to be in relatively compact cities that had a diversity of all the things I just said. That just kind of naturally happened. When the car was invented, it really was, it was kind of like too bad because suddenly people <laughs> are, 
in these, you know, metal vessels, isolated from each other, not as pedestrians. They're going far away from each other, using way too much, too many resources on asphalt pipes and God knows what. They're also then becoming more privatized. They're going into their own garage, they're closing the garage door, turning on, and then the next technology, TV. They're becoming much more isolated. That is the antithesis to vitality. Even what we're kind of quasi doing now on this podcast is the internet, which is another form of highway, so that people, not only have they got the metal vessels and the asphalt and the garage door, they're also sitting, staring at their computer screens and phones. And so they're not interacting with people in the ancient pedestrian way that you were in a long time. And I do think that that is a real threat to civilization. It's separating us. And I think you can even look in war-torn countries that a lot of hatred is built because people aren't so familiar with other people in their own country because they're a different ethnicity, different religion. They live because of the car in different far places or more isolated. And so that that is not a good trend. However, I would say younger people, my daughter is would be my prime example, but I would say most of the people in our office are are kind of the opposite. Even though they're connected to a global economy, they seek to live in a denser city. They, Even though they're using high technology, they actually are interested in handmade art and the maker movement and going to restaurants that are not necessarily part of a chain and being part of that. And I think that is a hunger. And I think you know, here in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, you can see there's a definite trend to that. And I think actually you could probably see that throughout the United States. That's exactly what we're trying to do also in Suzhou, China, in that one particular project. Talked about the intimacy as well, intimacy in a lot of other areas of your uh, your answers. You said before we got on our show about the podcast, how you, what you liked about it was it had, a, there's a, if I remember right, a sort of intimacy and authenticity mm -hmm. that you can't escape. Right. It's not pre-programmed, pre-planned. It's as raw and real as you can get. I don't know if it's just by design or this dynamics. This is very raw and real. I've never met Tom and Charlotte before. <laughs> and, and actually, I was very encouraged when, 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 when I asked uh, yeah, and I asked Tom, um, you know, should I prepare for this? He said, no, that's great because then it's the real thing. And I think that's also when people are in a public place. You're the real you in your physicality, doing what you do. And I think that is, actually, we need that to sustain society. That we really do. So that technology, although it's a relatively new, as simple as a podcast, is actually creating a sense of intimacy, a more yeah, intimacy. It, it is, yeah. Yeah, and so you just shared why, at least in your yeah, experience. Yeah, And you weren't sure how to even, how do I listen to one and yeah, I showed no, you. I, Here's how easy it is, uh, Morton. I hate to admit <laughs> to the radio audience that the podcast audience, I've never listened to a podcast before, but Tom is an, an excellent instructor and you can Thank contact you. him at <laughs> yeah. kzsu.com. Yeah, or org. Yeah. Or, dot org, sorry. Yeah. Or Charlotte. Yeah, so another one was you hear is it timeless right. can you touch on that word timeless and what I it think, means to you yeah i do believe in that even though i think a lot of the architecture we do style is important but and i'm not exactly sure how to define this but i think also really good architecture is timeless it's not like you're just doing a fad that looks a lot of a lot of architecture does frankly become dated very quickly and a lot of and so yes you know the modern architect yeah. the modern movement does often try to do novel architecture but many times there's a reason why people didn't do it that way and 
it only becomes evident, you know, some years later, there's an early novelty of it. I think timeless is actually kind of, is really looking at functionally what really is actually happening. You know, there's a store. It has storefront windows. It's got a door. And, underst- and, and understanding and just accepting the fact that you do have even the simplicity of doors, windows, roofs, and different sort of things. And I think there's, and it's a language that can be recombined in many, many, many different ways. And if you do that in a sincere way that is programmatic, according to how, let's say, it's shopping, how people are people want to shop, how people circulate through, let's say, a retail environment. What actually makes sense for getting rain off of buildings, maybe gutters and downspouts <laughs> aren't a bad idea. You actually, that is timeless. And just doing it quite honestly, not trying necessarily, I think every project is unique because it's always on a unique site for a unique user, but it is taking a established language Maybe doing with a certain twist and style, so it's somewhat referenced a little bit differently, but applying that. And I think that is a timeless way to work. And I think most of the projects that we've worked on, maybe all, I would like to say all, have actually aged extremely well. They have not said, oh, gee, that looked like something from 20 years ago or something like that. I think people actually feel like they've been there a long, long time and aged and patina appropriately. Most modern buildings, I can tell you, you know, modern architect, a big argument about this, but actually don't age that well, partly because they're they're kind of scaleless. And even having a lot of flat surfaces or using unusual materials, you know, for a, in ways that haven't been done, usually it doesn't age that well. It gets dirty, it sags, it cracks, it stains. Whereas a lot of traditional architecture actually the patina is actually, you know, the weathering of it when it gets older actually builds upon the character of it as opposed to the other way around. Well stated, Martin. Well stated. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Teach for America is a national core of outstanding recent college graduates and professionals who commit to teaching for two years in urban and rural public schools in lower-income areas nationwide. If you're a college senior interested in being a part of this core, or if you'd like to help support the program, visit teachforamerica.org. We're talking today with Morton Jensen, architect and president of JRDV Urban International. For more information, you can visit jrdv.com. Again, jrdv.com. Morton, again, we'll touch upon with the architecture and construction business constantly evolving, the expectations for uh, architects and builders evolve as well. Again, What's changed at least uh, significantly, if you can recall, in the last three or five years for you? Is it the interaction with clients, with the public, with the cities, the legislation? What's changed either for the good or the bad in your experience in the last three to five years? I I would say, again, I would say three to five years, it doesn't feel really all that. Ten years. Ten ten years. Let's go ten. You know, so I, I think, so a lot of our projects are... I would say the majority of our projects are public-private projects where there's a government entity that may have owned the land and then there's a private developer that had through what's called a request for proposals RFP process. And you would end up with an interactive process. You could say Shanghai Village, Yulin, Pudong, Shanghai could be a very good example of that. Actually, our client is officially just a tenant of it, but it was a build-to-suit project. But I, I would say... 
that process has been around for a long time. I think the most interesting projects are, and I think actually most of what is difficult about it and challenging and worthwhile is somewhat timeless. I mean, if you go back and, you know, to, you know, earlier history, it's, you know, you look at the creation of Grand Central Station in New York, you know, that was a, obviously it was a public private project. There's there's many of those. So I'm not sure that I really see that there's that much of it. I'm really apologize for not being able to give a better answer, at least for what I'm involved in. It feels like that sort of thing is similar. What has been different for me, and maybe it's part of globalization, which has obviously expanded in the last 10 years, and it's something that our office was really founded on, was doing work far away. So we have to understand the construction methods in different cities and in different countries. We know some places they build of poured concrete. Sometimes it's precast concrete. Sometimes it's metal. Sometimes it's wood. It's different. And there's and there's different ways that the project gets built. Uh, sometimes it's more design build. Sometimes it's more traditional. So we have seen that. We've had the benefit of working probably in at least 10 different countries of seeing different systems. And I think what we always try to do is really try to learn their system, whether you're in China or in Spain or the United States, trying to understand how it's going on to be built. And even within one country, different projects have very different methods, whether the contractor is involved in the very beginning and is super involved and we're doing an, a second Berkeley high rise right now. And it's with a contractor who is extremely involved in the design process. Actually, we're working in hand to hand, creating a Revit model where all the different subcontractors plug in, even as we're in the earlier stages of the project. So that's a very different experience from other projects that we're also, say, doing in the East Bay, which are a little bit more traditional. The architect draws it up and then you've, or let's say our project in Culver City that's nearing construction, there really wasn't that. The contractor was really just picked um, the last six months after working on the project for 12 years. So that's a, a different sort of system. So I think it's a little bit over the map. I think, you know, it's, I think, you know, we are dropped in the Petri dish of a particular situation <laughs> and we try to swim and contribute as much as we can and see how it works. But, <laughs> but as I said, you know, a lot of our projects we've worked on for a long time. I mean, I think our average project we've been working on for like five years, 10 years is kind of often when they sort of get <laughs> executed. And I don't think that's unusual. Yeah, no. um, I don't think it's totally unusual. No. Um, what is the difference in your experience? Our audience, I'm sure, will be curious, is working with China and uh, government-run, and then the U.S. were private, primarily private. Is there? Is there? Can you share the difference? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, and I think one can think. So any answer I will give now is going to be, by definition, overgeneralization. Perfect. Yeah. No, yeah. it really is. It's very okay. complex. In many ways, China is more capitalistic than here. You could actually create a strong argument and say, well, how is that possible? But, you know, so there's many different levels to this. And and I've actually spent a lot of time trying just to understand the Chinese economy. I would just say that getting to work in China and one of our clients brought us there. We had never worked in China, never been in China before. We actually started working on on Suzhou Village, Yiu Lai and Suzhou for a very close client that we've worked with for over 20 years, but it has been a wonderful thing for me to begin to understand a place that is so different than, than here. And of course, there's a lot of commonalities, but it's a, it's a different process there in many ways. But as you said, you, and your question was about working for the government there, 
we've been, we've actually worked both for a public, we've worked for the city of Shanghai, worked for the city of Quinchon, and we've worked for private developers there as well. I don't, I actually in some ways don't think it's as different to us, whether we're working for the government client or the private client. In China, everything is faster and bigger. We, we know that. It's a really fast rat wheel that's going. And it's really exciting. <laughs> you call it a rat wheel. <laughs> it, it, maybe that's the wrong way to describe it. But, <laughs> it, but you know, you're, you really are always panting and you've got to think on your feet and things change and things that have to happen at a very rapid pace. I think that's probably one of the biggest differences about working in China. But whether you're working on the public side or the private side, because our projects are always public-private, both the ones that are here and the ones that are there, typically most of our projects are, it's kind of the two sides of the same coin. It's not that different. And if we're working for the public sector, we're trying to work in such a way that we hope that we're contributing to the fact that we know what the private sector needs to do to realize what the work of the public sector is and vice versa. If we're working for a private client, we're trying to help them understand what it is from the perspective of the public servants that are also involved in the project. So I don't really see it as that different. I think the I think it's I think the rules and regulations have they have they changed or no? Yeah, they're, no. They're, they're they're more similar, I think, in many ways in China to what are here for people that maybe haven't done architecture there. They have building codes and processes and approvals. They have different names for them and safety regulations and so forth. But I wouldn't say it's not like you went to a completely different planet and it was like all <laughs> everything was upside down. And it, it, it really isn't all that different. And, and partly it's modeled probably on a lot of the same sort of things, but rules about sustainability and so forth. It's And there's handicap ramps. It, it's not all that alien, really. And I think a lot of the principles that we have for exiting and for what are good practices, it's really not that fundamental. I mean, there'll be a lot of the particulars that are different, but even the type of the process that you go through and plan checks and and working with the planning department, getting the entitlements and working on circulation and you know trip generation and things like that, it's not that different, actually. It's surprisingly similar. Yeah. I like, you go back to the, uh, the other high-rise you're doing with the general contractor. Is that a common collaboration, that, that sort of, you use the word, intimacy again? Well, I think intimacy, you can use that in, okay. in every possible way. You know, I, I think every business should try to have an intimate relationship with their, their customers. I think, you know, every politician should wants to have that, that same kind of relation. I think it is what people need in, in general. And, and you really do want as collaborative a team. You don't want people to be siloed. Being siloed is very inefficient. And that's why our office actually, even though some people think of us as kind of a front-end architect, sometimes a master plan architect, sometimes an SD or DD architect uh, for the radio on schematic design, design yeah. development. But actually, we are typically on just about all of our projects, even our foreign projects, we're down to the last downspout and the last chip of paint. And it's because we do think it's important to integrate all aspects of it. And it's important to integrate every aspect from the structural design to all of it. The more people are siloed, the more time that's wasted. So I think, and I think that that second Berkeley project is a really good example of a, of a builder, developer, architect that all understand that and understand that you need that, you know, the DNA, like in your body, the DNA, I believe it's true. Probably someone here at Stanford will know, <laughs> but I think your full DNA is in every cell. You kind of need uh -huh. to understand okay. the whole picture and 
everyone can be kind of a doofus in a silo and say, well, I did my job and you did your job and did that job. That's why we also don't distinguish in our office so much between designers and technical people. Technical, every person needs to be technically competent. Every person needs to have a design vision. Every person has to have some management skill. And that's why in our office, we don't try to segment people. Everyone needs to be a full architect. And I think actually, even historically, there were times where people looked to architects among all the different professions in a city and saw the architect as this great integrator that was, you know, Brunelleschi himself was up on his dome and he he was not a dude that, well, the structural engineer said this and, <laughs> and the structural engineer said, well, Brunelleschi <laughs> yeah. ding dong with the patterns <laughs> said that. No, it's all a pattern. And I think the more we can try to do that, the more successful we'll all be. Yeah. How much is in your practice is design and if you can quantify a percentage, actual design work and then actually interfacing as a person to person? Yeah. You know, so I, I hate to be kind of a, a bad um, guest in some ways in, in answering it this way. I really think when you just have a conversation like we're having now, that is a form of design. We spend a lot of time oh. talking to our architects, but I do think you first have to start with a common set of observations that... Uh, this is kind of like a place that I think we might want to create here programmatically in terms of its emotional feel and so on and so forth. You begin by common observations. Then you talk about them. You say, I want to stretch this out or I want this to feel more like this or I want to mix this feeling with that feeling or this use with that use. So you it's a big waste. You don't just start typing you know, lines in CAD. No, you have to really verbalize that. Then you need to really go through what I, we like to start a project with workshops, a real kind of workshop method where we go a little beyond, you know, just the words that we start diagramming, finding different reference images and go through, create narratives and that sort of thing. So, you know, that's a, it's a lot of chit chat and people say, well, geez, these guys are wasting a lot of time. They could have driven, drawn this thing up four times, but it's actually, it saves a lot of time and gets you to a much better product. And, you know, as you go on, I think it becomes more of a heads down sort of thing. But I don't really make the distinction. I think there's nothing wrong. I always felt, even as a student at Berkeley, uh, well, Stanford's yeah, go ahead. Stanford, yeah. but um, <laughs> even when you looked at the results of student work, like, you know, let's say, you know, they'd done a semi-thesis project or an important project, and you, of course, we hadn't slept for days, so we were completely dazed, but you just kind of step back and you could see on some of them that they didn't really have a conversation with anyone. I always thought you ought to go to a pizza restaurant and with some napkins and start talking about this thing and get all excited and worked up about it, then start doing the drawing. But if you just kind of get locked into, oh, gee, I'm doing a grid and this and the blah, 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 you completely missed it. But, you know, I'm only speaking from my own perspective. Every architect is, like every person, is different and beautiful in their own way. And that may not be everyone's method, but our method is very social. We talk, 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 talk. And if you're a possible client, you like talking, probably we're not the right guy. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Charlotte, you had a question. Wow, I love I love it. You said your method is social. I'm fascinated by I'm here staring at your website. I have the benefit of pictures that Tom doesn't, but I want you to just tell us about the project that you've been doing for Kushan Duke University in China. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Because you've got now the public, the private, and the university. Right. It's it's all there. So maybe one of the this is one of the you know the largest US schools that has established a campus in China. It might be the largest. It's that's one of the, stunning. it's a famous it's a famous one. And the reason and so and in China they really do 
understand that there's a huge government role in creating economic development. So they, this was government land, that they established that school, and that they actually created a whole innovation hub around the school. So in China, for people that don't know, they're very quickly urbanizing where people are moving to the big cities where they can be connected to the global economy. The city of Quinshan is probably the city in the world where Almost all baby strollers are made. Most iPads or a lot of iPads, a lot of other different products are made in those. And, and more and more, they tend not to be things like baby strollers, but they're actually things that, and there's quite, quite a list of things that Quinchon City, probably no one's ever heard of here, that there's a long list of, of different common household types of goods, but now are becoming more high tech and actually designed in China that are made in this area. So it's part of trying to create an innovation hub. There's no question. It's very impressive of what they're doing. So our project there is a leisure project. And uh-huh. we were originally selected because city of Quinchon came, went over to the city of Suzhou and they saw our project and said, gee, we would like this. This looks like a place where people really would be able to feel comfortable and walk outdoors, go to different restaurants. This project is primarily restaurants. I think it's like 20 restaurants, something like that. A few other stores thrown in, a museum. Um, a church. A, a, there's a church. Well, you mentioned the church, and that could take us into a real cul-de-sac discussion. Yeah. <laughs> and we're probably being broadcast in China as well. Right, yeah. Um, so, so we were a little bit, So there were some things that were a little bit surprising about the project, but the our client had a real vision for it, and they were very much trying to create, I'm talking, the way I like to see it is they're trying to connect back to the roots. Quinchon actually probably has as many water towns within its boundaries as any city does. There's, wow. there's probably like 30 or 60, and I've been to maybe seven or eight of them, and I just love it. I just love being in those water towns. <sighs> Not being remotely Chinese in background, <laughs> um, I, it's, it's where I'm the happiest. Um, I'm not really all that happy in a lot of other modern building places, but I really do feel connected to humanity there. So we were trying to create, and this happens also to be on a lake. Many of our projects in China turned out to have been on lakes, to be a lake and really creating a wonderful leisure a place for, for leisure. We were a little thrown by the church itself. I think it's actually now going to be a functioning church. At one point, it was going to be a museum. I think a big part of it is also there's a lot of weddings that take place in China. It's a very big mm-hmm. thing. A lot of people, a lot of people get married. And being on a waterfront with a lot of restaurants, a lot of amenities is part of it. But yeah, no, so it's, it's a wonderful project just opened. Um, How I, long would that, well, does that take from... Beginning to where it took a while. I, if I were to make a guess, we probably started working on that in 2015, 14, maybe 2014. It's been a while and it finally did open this year. And we were just, I was just there a few weeks ago. It's a stunning project. I'm fascinated, Morton. I have to ask you, like, you have like phenomenal amount of work and it's all urban design that's actually been produced and built and is getting ready to be built and this kind of thing. So it's a stunning career path and it's very successful. Now, how did you just sort of jump the pond here in the Bay Area from Berkeley? And I assume your offices, I don't know if it's in Oakland or where offices. So how did you sort of jump out of Berkeley and evolve such a portfolio of projects? It's stunning. Well, and, and obviously I didn't do it by myself. You know, I've got wonderful partners, have two partners, and a wonderful team. We try to have very low attrition. Um, so it, it's a team effort. Um, okay, low attrition. It, 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 it's not, it's not about me. It's, it's, it, it's 
Yeah. It's about all of us and what we're contributing. But in terms of my own personal path, I was a young student in Berkeley. I came there in summer of 76. That's kind of a long time ago. Most of your listeners weren't born. <laughs> but and was there for, I think it took a little longer to graduate, but I ended up starting to work in San Francisco at what was the time would soon become one of the largest architecture offices in San Francisco. It's still around. And I actually began to work there before I had graduated, or at least got all my units counted. I stayed there for 22 years, but working there, it was a very diverse practice that had a lot of different personalities, some very driven personalities, and actually had a little bit of an international experience that had a Mexico City office that had a, Japan, a Tokyo office for a while. And actually, it's where our first project's in Europe. And so our office was actually, uh, I think, unique in that it was a spinoff of that office. Ed McFarlane, another partner of office, also had, had worked there. And we actually were able to spin off. I think it was the one and only time that they ever did that, and with clients and with the staff. And so my whole career has been very evolutionary. I really, it was a, a friend of mine from Worcester Hall, the architecture building in at Berkeley, that had already had a job at KMD. I shouldn't have maybe said the name, but it was the name of the firm. And I went there, stayed for 22 years, evolved there. And the kind of work that I did there also is kind of similar to the, it's, it, it's, it's on the same general directional path as the work that our office has done. And we've been, that was in 2003. And so that was, you know, 16 years ago. Yeah. Your approach, I notice, is uh, very human-centered that's a real efficient He's a word. social being, yes. Yeah, very human-centered work, regardless of the size of the project. Is that someone I, I, Well, yeah, and, and I, I take that as a compliment. I really don't think yeah. it matters what the walls are, are actually in the end made of. I don't... So, you know, that doesn't... You know, I'm interested in it for its efficiency that it can be built at the best cost, but it's actually what happens between the walls. And actually, I think in general, it's not even just between the walls, it's between what happens between buildings. I even think each building is kind of its own little, you know, you know entity with its own, you know, you know, life. Yeah, yeah wait, or it, its yeah. own little structure and boss and stuff. You really want to be in a common way. And if, commonplace that's kind of open to humanity and that's between buildings and we're fortunate that we have most of our projects are multiple building projects that's kind of one of the things we're kind of known for is having multiple buildings in a setting but it's really what happens between and going back to the social it's the socialization are we improving socialization having people feel good about themselves interacting in a positive way with other people creating economic development Doing something, we're all only here for a certain while. Are we improving things? That's what we really care about. I commend you. There's a building over in uh, Palo Alto that actually is is a uh, county courthouse, and I've actually been in contempt of court because I couldn't find the front door to the yeah. building to get in to yeah. go to my like my court date for a traffic ticket. <laughs> yeah, but you see, well, that, I can't find. The, I mean, the architects don't. There's so many architects that don't realize that their the, you know their fundamental thing is to show us where the front door is to the building. Yeah. You know, there's many cases of that. I mean, that's kind of where sometimes architects try to be novel. And, you know, a window is not a window, a door is not a door, a courthouse doesn't look like a courthouse. As a matter of fact, the courthouse, even though you were finally figured out that it's a courthouse, isn't legible enough that you can even tell where the entrance is. And I think a lot of architects get into that, but I love all architects, and it's, and maybe they're trying to tell us something. Maybe there's some important message that we're supposed to get out of that, that we're supposed to, you know, it takes us out of our element that, you know, Charlotte's now... 
exploring her <laughs> inner self because you can't find the door and you may realize something about humanity and, and stuff. I, I tend to be a little more direct that I think buildings should be legible. You should be able to intuitively go and use the buildings. But, you know, that's only one perspective. You have many people on the program. Yeah, I like that. I, I noticed another theme is you, you, you like projects on lake or by water. Yeah. Is, is there a... But that has never been particularly intentional. And certainly in the Yangtze River Delta in the part of China where actually most of our built projects probably really are, there's water everywhere. Everywhere. There's canals and there's waters and there's lakes. I'm sure they're parts of the United States. I mean, it's all an alluvial deposit out of the Yangtze River, one of the biggest rivers in the world. And people have lived in this area for a long, long time. And so water is, is pretty common there. I grew up, I was originally from Copenhagen in, in Denmark. A lot of water there too. It's another flat as a pancake place. Flat as a pancake places often have water yeah. mixed in to a lot of places. <laughs> Oakland, I feel downtown Oakland, even though it's surrounded by water between Lake Merritt, the estuary, and the bay. feels very isolated from water. I really wish there was more water close to where like, our office is. San Francisco is beautiful because it's got the hills, and you're always looking down the streets and seeing the water. Even Manhattan, you see the East River and the Hudson River. The water is something beautiful. Most cities over time have been by the water. Exactly. But I'm sure the Italian hill towns are just fine too. So yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not it's not a prerequisite. Yeah, they they are. Another one is that social aspect just is just a reoccurring theme on your show today is I I mean why so much, you know, and I mean it in a very good way. It's not a baited question. So much of it's social. I mean like it's like the building is almost secondary or third. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go that far, but yeah, I, uh, let's yeah. say if I do, it is about the human connection. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I sort of see architecture in, in many ways as like a language. So if you're writing something down, like what languages normally are, they're written, then that's inherently social because unless you're like some poet that's you know living in your own mountaintop, writing it for yourself, theoretically, when you're writing or when we're doing this podcast, we're using language to communicate to a lot of people. I think architecture is the same way. And I see it as as a language, and I see it as inherently social. And it can be used for good means. It can be used for bad means. It can be productive. It can be unproductive, just like the spoken word. Yeah. We're coming uh, to the close of uh, your show, Morton. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to uh, share with uh, the audience that we may not have yeah. touched on? We may have touched on it a little bit. I, I think architecture should be a bigger part in the lives of more people. Actually, the architectural profession is kind of shrinking in a lot of ways, and I think that's really too bad. I think it's the product of the car, the internet, different things that people aren't spending. I consider capital A architectures where people are pedestrians and they're around a multiplicity of different buildings, seeing different people. I mean, that's obviously a very narrow view, perhaps, of architecture is much greater. But I think that's the most important architecture. And I think the most important architecture is public places. I don't think we have enough of them in our lives. I don't think enough effort is put into them, enough time isn't put. There's a lot of political forces, there are economic forces, geopolitical, global forces that go against this. And I think we ought to push to have more opportunities for important architectural moments where we can have, just like you've got your spoken word here on the podcast and at kzsu.org, that you, you want to expand 
the audience for that. And I think that's, you know, if I was to leave one last message. Yeah. And frankly, it, it, there's, there's not that much. And there's not even necessarily among clients, among different user groups, all that much. I don't feel that there's necessarily... What demand isn't quite the right demand, but there isn't, it doesn't, it seems like there should be more of an effort and interest in architecture. And I think, you know, we're all, as practicing architects, we're guilty that we haven't attracted a bigger constituency of people around the world and of all ethnic, you know, all income groups, different places that are really truly want to be engaged in an architectural experience, just like people who, let's say that people didn't want to read newspapers. Let's say people didn't want to read the newspaper or, or listen to the radio. That would be a shame. I don't think we have enough people that are really necessarily engaged in this and realize how this does have the potential to improve the world. And I think even self-communicate to themselves who they are as a society. I think you really need these kind of urban places so that you know that this is the village, this is the city, this is the, the place that I live. And you don't have that, I don't think, without architecture. And it can't can't be done too artificially. You can't just take a regular shopping mall and say, oh, yeah, I'm a mall walker, but this is my whole identity. But I think that's that's a sad thing. And it's very common. And I'm, and I'm sure around the world, certainly in the United States. The mauling well, of America. Yeah, yes. yeah, that kind of thing. And so I think the more that people want to connect that and be in historic places and really connect with the past and um, on an intimate level, that's, that's what I would like. And who knows? It's a. It's something that we have to have a conscious effort to try to pursue because a lot of technology is pushing us exactly in the opposite direction. Well stated. Well stated. I hope all the developers out there are listening and they, they come and find you. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. no! Thank you very no. much. And we're helping obviously with uh, having guests like you. I'm yeah, Martin. Well, thank you very well, much. Thank you very much for we're, having me. We're honored. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure having you as our guest today. Thank you again. You've been listening to the Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Morton. Jensen, architect and president of JRDV Urban International. JRDV is an integrated practice that combines architectural design, urban planning, and development strategy. For more information, feel free to visit JRDV.com. Again, JRDV.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California and on location throughout California. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. And again, that's case interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.